Welcome to the Jason Wright Show, folks. Okay, today is a special day because we are going to improve our focus always and always, or that's at least what we should be trying to do. So I am someone who is self-diagnosed ADD, and I have a very, very difficult time with focus. And I think that most all of us do at this point in time because there are so many things vying for our attention trying to distract us. Uh, I had mentioned a while back that I read this book, Stolen Focus, it's, which is a, it's a, a great read. It starts out uh, better than it ends. And the reason why is because Johan Hari, uh, good author, don't want to knock the guy, but he just couldn't help but let his ideology sneak into the book. But it starts out with a bang, and it really talks a lot about this whole problem we have with uh, stolen focus and, and our attention being sought after. And one of my favorite quotes, I've mentioned it a couple of times on the show. I was watching the, um, the documentary, The Social Dilemma, it's where I first heard this. And a lot of reference to The Social Dilemma documentary is made in this book. It said that if you are getting something for free, and think about the things that we get for free with regard to digital assets. You have Facebook, free. You have Instagram, free. Twitter is free. Uh, Snapchat is free. And here's a really big one. Gmail is free. All of those. And so the, the, the quote that really stuck with me from The Social Dilemma was this. If you're getting something for free, then most likely you are the product. And so whenever we think about, well, what the hell does that mean? What, how am I the product? What is the actual um, thing that is of value as it relates in this scenario? It's very simple. It's my and your attention. That's what they want. That's what the social media companies want. As I have dived into this stuff deeper and deeper and deeper, it is insane. I'm actually creating, it's funny, it comes up everywhere. I, don't, I wish I had the book in front of me so I could call the actual name. Actually, I do have it right here. Let's see if I can find it for you real quick. Well, I'll tell you, I can look it up. So I'm reading, uh, I'm doing a lot of research right now for a course that I'm developing on habit formation. And the I'm studying the work of B.J. Fogg and... Founder of, just a second, folks, sorry. And this name comes up. Uh, so, okay, here we go. So let me tell you a little bit about B.J. Fogg. B.J. Fogg is a behavioral scientist at Stanford University. He is actually the founder of the Stanford Behavior Design Lab. So you don't think about some professor out in Silicon Valley in Palo Alto, being someone that has a big impact on social media, right? That's kind of not, that's not really what leaps to mind. However, BJ Fogg and his methodology for behavioral design has played an enormous role in, um, in social media. And here's how. So Kevin Systrom, and if you don't know who Kevin Systrom is, Kevin Systrom is one of the founders of a little app known as Instagram. And he was a student of B.J. Fogg. And here is what he realized whenever he was creating the app, because I think it started out, I can't remember the, the predecessor to Instagram before uh, it became Instagram. 
but it was a uh, there was another app that he developed, and he realized that it was kind of a flop that people weren't using it that much. There was one feature that they were using and that they loved, and it was the ability to take pictures quickly and share them. So what they essentially did was strip everything away from the app and only leave the picture sharing um, uh, ability into the app. And that's what we mostly use Instagram for, right? You take pictures and with uh, with little bitty subtitles, and there you go. That is Instagram. Well, it was from thinkers like that and from the work of BJ Fogg on how to get our attention and how to keep it and how to manipulate dopamine to create habits that formed a lot of the basis for how Facebook and Google, TikTok, all these companies, how they get and keep our attention. And so I only say that just because I found one, it's uh, kind of remarkable that it's no, the fact that we sit there and just scroll like zombies on our phones is not by accident. And I know that most everyone listening to this knows that, but nevertheless, it there are some things we can do to combat this um, this phenomenon that is social media and that is our our attention being stolen, our focus being stolen, because you it's amazing. And I'm going to read uh, some from an article that I have here it's, that uh, came from the Flow Research Collective that um, I think is just uh, absolutely phenomenal. Actually, it's from Rand Doris, who is uh, the CEO of the. Uh, Flow Collective. I think what is I always say that wrong. It's the yeah the Flow Research Collective, um, Stephen Kotler's organization. He founded uh, doing research on flow and actual extreme focus. And the th- the reason why this is so important is one obviously it's healthier for your brain, but two, you can 10x your performance and your productivity if you're able to get into a flow state and understand how to have extreme focus. You focus. You will be able to tap into your brain's neuroplasticity. That means that let's say that you're a stroke victim. Let's say that you've had some sort of trauma to the head. There's, let's just say that you're, you're a poor learner like me. I am. I struggle with learning. I really do. And so, but your brain can actually it has a plasticity to it, which means that it can be formed. And but the only way to really fully leverage that is to have intense, extreme focus. And so, I wanted to talk about this because so much of where our focus is going is to uh, social media, our screens, and other things, and distractions. There's just a lot to be distracted in the world. So let's just dig into this email from Rance, first of all. So so what is causing all the wasted attention in the first place? And he says, in a word, distraction. We know by now that distraction stresses us out, makes us dumber, blunts our empathy, and fragments our attention. So in this series, this is the deal that uh, that he's, he's putting together, he's going to focus primarily on distractions that are most relevant to float. Now, let me tell you something. He says in this uh, opening uh, sentence here, we know by now that distraction stresses out and makes us dumber. So I can't remember. I don't think it was in this actual email that he put out, but there was a study done that showed that people's IQ scores actually dropped by 12 points after using social media and I don't remember what time how, how long it was darn it I wish I could get that but uh, it was actually I mean 12 points just from scrolling on social media before taking an exam it, it's crazy uh, let's see here okay so this is uh, he, he quotes a study 
that I'm going to get to here in a minute also. Okay, I'm trying to figure out where I want to dig into this thing because there's so much I want to share with you guys. But then I want to get to, I got a little help from Dr. Andrew Huberman, who also is a Stanford professor, and he talks about a great tactic for narrowing our focus, and that's what I want to get to. But I wanted to pull some pieces out of this email or this article that Rents wrote because I thought it was just fantastic. Okay, let's see. Uh, neuroscientist Adam Gazali defines distractions as goal-irrelevant information that we either encounter in our external surroundings or generate internally within our minds. The operative word here is information. We are wired to crave information. In primates, the brain responds to new information like how it responds to food. This served our ancestors because new information was a matter of life and death. So I have said many times, one of the biggest issues we have is as a species right now is that we were not designed for this uber, uber first world habitat in which we now live in, which I know sounds crazy because we do have so many things that are just phenomenal that we never thought we would have possible. I mean, we have you know, the 10 cent calorie. I mentioned that all the time. You can go out and crush a thousand calories right now. You don't have to hunt for it. You don't have to sweat for it. You don't have to, I mean, you can literally take that massive density of energy in without exerting any energy out. That's why you see so many fat people these days is because they can consume massive quantities of energy without exerting any energy. Well, it's the same with information. Our brains, which are built to be prediction machines, are built to conserve energy, are not built to, because the brain only knows to survive. It's, It's built for survival. So therefore, it wants information. It wants to know what is what are the surroundings telling us about this environment that we need to be aware of to survive. Well, when you live in an environment like we all do right now, where there's just so much coming at us, then if left to its own devices, the brain will just exhaust itself and it will try to consume as much as it possibly can. So we have to take initiative to start deciding where that focus is going to go because after all where focus goes energy flows so if we want to take our brain's energy reservoir and reserves and put it in an optimal useful utility-based place we have to take the levers on this we're wired to crave information in primates the brain responds to new information like how it responds to food learning that a lion was lurking in the bushes new information was more important than staying focused. In a crisis like that, ignoring Simba and finishing a task would be fatal. This is, a, this is partly why our information-seeking drive is stronger than top-down cognitive control, attention, working memory, and goal management. What's happening under the hood here? Okay. It starts with the nucleus acumens, a cluster of nerve cells underneath the cerebral cortex. Neuroscientists often refer to it as the brain's pleasure center. It always leads to dopamine, folks. Watch this. It's crazy. And that's why I did the article a while back where I had the little um, IV drip with a PDA in place of the uh, drip bag because it always goes back to dopamine. It's crazy. It's the region that lights up when gamblers place a bet, drug addicts snort, or when people have orgasms. The likelihood that an activity will lead to addiction links to, one, how fast it releases dopamine, two, the intensity of that release, and three, the reliability of that release. Uh, signaling or injecting a, wait a minute, is that right? Inhaling or injecting a drug, as opposed to swallowing a pill, produces a faster, uh, a faster 
and stronger dopamine release. Social media, smartphones, and modern-day tech act similarly. So in this effort to... So B.J. Fogg, going back to B.J. Fogg at Stanford and the author of Tiny Habits, his idea was to leverage dopamine production to, to adopt good behaviors that would lead to good habits, right? Social media companies realize, hmm, if there are some things we can do that can ignite dopamine, then we can get people hooked to our products, and then we can then once we've got their attention, then we can do whatever the hell we want with them. We can put whatever we want in front of them. So that's kind of how this all worked. Um, social media, smartphones, and modern-day tech, similarly. They're designed to cause a dopamine surge in the nucleus acumen. Acumens, I don't think I'm saying that right, so please forgive me, as fast as possible. And and the pleasure of this release is so extreme that many animals would rather die than stop experiencing it. And I've actually read this uh, study in a number of different places as far as researching the impact of dopamine. Check this out. This experiment at McGill University, neuroscientists Peter Milner and James Olds placed a small electrode in the brains of rats on the nucleus acumens. A lever in the cage allowed these rats to send a small electrical signal directly to their nucleus acumens. Do you think they liked it? Oh, yeah. How they did. They liked it so much that they did nothing else. They forgot all about eating and sleeping, starved or not. They ignored tasty food. They even ignored sexual opportunities. The rats pressed the lever over and over again until they died. And you wonder why. If you ever see a meth addict out there with the teeth falling out, their skin is just hanging from their bones, and you're thinking to yourself, when was the last time you ate and why they don't eat, why these drug addicts get so skinny? Well, dopamine has the ability to just completely consume the individual. It is, it is powerful, powerful stuff. And so with that knowledge, to me, it's like, okay, if we understand better what's going on with dopamine, then it will make us, one, leverage it to our benefit, pull us towards those good behaviors and good habits. But certainly, we better be on the watch out because other people that are a lot smarter than us know how to use dopamine for for their benefit. And just, I mean, think about it. it there's so many people that will sit in front of a, a, a screen scrolling, you know, almost at the expense of eating. It's crazy. The, and then... Uh, so they so they died. The average knowledge worker behaves similarly every time we dispatch an email, tap out a text, or gawk at a newsfeed. Our brain gets a dollop of dopamine, and we feel a tiny sense of accomplishment. This incessant info snacking constitutes a neural addiction. We're addicted. We want to know what's happening. Why do you think we're always looking at Facebook? Why do we care what our high school friend that we haven't seen in 30 years why do we care where she went on vacation or what she had for dinner? Isn't that weird? But we do. We want the information. Again, for our ancestors, this info gathering was essential. But in a high-tech world where everything is meticulously engineered by the brightest minds of our time to seize and sustain our attention, it's more of a bug than a feature. Technology facilitates the ability for us to be like caged rats, endlessly pressing that lever for pleasure. And that's just modern tech interacting with our internal dopamine system. So I actually posted, I may have written an article about this, I think I did, where I included a picture of the gamesman on the Hunger Games. So you you remember how the games makers, they would sit in a room 
and they're watching all the people playing in the Hunger Games, and they would like move a tr- uh, they like like start a fire in the forest to kind of get the players to move a certain direction. Well, there are actually people in cubicles right now watching behaviors going on on social media, so that they will know what to which messages to prompt you to get to to steer you towards freaking LL Bean for another pair of chinos. I mean that's 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 what's happening. We 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 wonder if if they're watching us, if they're listening to us through our uh, through through Siri or or whatever. Yeah, they're watching our patterns and our movements right now, and they and they're bright. These are very brilliant people that know how to manipulate our attention and get it to get to go where we want to go because they know wherever they can get our focus to go, that's where they can get our energy to go that will hopefully turn into buying whatever they're trying to put in front of us. Attention is further threatened when you bring in everyone else. There are over 7.9 billion people in the world. 5.3 billion of them are on the internet, internet and 2.9 billion are active on Facebook every month. What do these people have in common? They want you to hear from them, see them, like them, understand them, and follow them. There are 250 million businesses, 150 million websites, 70 million of them advertise online using 5,000 different tools to optimize their marketing efforts. These companies spend $629 billion per year on ads to do one thing, to get your attention. At this point, it's hard to imagine life before our personal and professional world was so dominated and switched on. Our devices are as indispensable as they are distractible. We check our phones every 12 minutes, often after first waking up. Here's what I did. So in implementing my BJ Fogg uh, habit model, he has a Fogg developed the uh, Fogg behavior model. And I actually, I think I posted something on my Instagram. If you haven't seen it, go to Jason right now and, and just look. I think I posted something on there and how I used it. No, it was on my YouTube channel. So the Jason Wright Show, just check it out. And I actually described how I use the BJ Fogg behavior model to create the habit of doing 100 pull-ups per day. Uh, It's really beneficial when you understand how habits are created and how we can manipulate uh, the dopamine hits to our benefit or cut them off. And the, the, the behavior model is really, really beneficial. And one of them that I have used it for is also to not look at my phone in bed. And so just really quickly in a nutshell, you're having to look at, it's, a, it's literally a map, that, and use that as an acronym, motivation, ability, and prompt. And so the problem with scrolling in bed, which I know a lot of you do, just like I do, is that our motivation is high. It's, it's, it's just easy and it's high. The motivation is high. And then the second thing is it's really easy. So you got that ability, it's easy. So if you've got a high motivation and you've got the ease to do it, then that is the ingredients for a really, really good and hard-to-break habit. And then P, you've got that prompt. Well, the prompt is the, the phone is there, especially if you have your notifications on. It is almost impossible to lie in bed with a phone that has the notification. You hear the ding or the whatever that sound is, you know, whenever you get a like or something on Facebook or Instagram. Uh so what do you have to do? You got to you're not going to lower the motivation. If it's there, you're not going to just talk yourself out of doing it. That's like motivation working to create a good habit. That usually won't work. It's not sustainable. It might get you started, but it's not going to sustain you for the long haul. So what are you going to do? Well, you look down. What can you manipulate? The ease. 
you can make it harder. So what I do now is I plug my phone in into the ki- in the kitchen, and I don't even have it by my bed. And here's the biggest thing. I can still, I mean, how many times have you been walking and it's was the phantom buzz? You know, you'll, you'll think your phone is not even in your pocket, but you'll feel it vibrate. Well, I'll be lying in bed reading, and my problem is if my phone is on my nightstand, what I will do, I'll be reading a book, and a topic will come up in the book. Because a lot of what I read, which you're not supposed to do, you should read fiction in, in bed, not nonfiction, but I do occasionally. And I will read about some study or something, and then I'll immediately want to go to my phone and do a little bit more research. Well, when the phone is not there, then I'm not going to go to it. I have created a difficulty that, that short circuits or kind of puts up a block to go, well, I'm not getting out of bed just to go find this out. So anyway, that's just a little sidebar about the behavior model that you can use. And again, you know, it's what BJ Fogg has used to teach some of these Silicon Valley types how to go out and and tap into our habit-forming instincts to create the habit of scrolling in bed. We have become interruptible every second of the day. If the average in the average office, office, there's a meager five minutes between interruptions. Nearly half of workplace employees respond to an email immediately after receiving it and spend 10 minutes dealing with its contents, only to have another 10 to 15 minutes to return to work. And this sort of rapid response is expected. Here's one of the things that has happened with me is I tend to think that just because someone has texted me, I'm supposed to get, I I treat it as though they're literally sitting there with their phone waiting for my response. I feel an obligation to respond to them. And for me, the only way I was able to to just kind of get rid of that thought was to put my phone on focus and just not even look at text messages except for throughout the day. I have become addicted to not the social media, but to the, the focus and do not disturb uh, functionalities on your phone. If you have never used, which, and by the way, you know, I say this like this is a big, duh, big, obvious thing. I didn't start using do not disturb or like whenever I'm working, there's nothing I hate more than to be exercising, to be really like grueling out some, you know, hit workout where I'm, it's taking all my focus and it's hurting. And then to have my phone ring, it just, I get so frustrated. Well, you can actually, uh, move your phone to focus when you're training. So it automatically, if it, if it's if you're training and you've got an Apple Watch or something like that, and it picks up that you are actually in a in an exercise mode, it will automatically go to uh, do not disturb. But I at airplane mode, like right now, my phone is on airplane mode, and I think I hope so. Um, I have learned to just go off the grid. How many of us talk about how we'd love to just go off grid for forever? Well. I have learned that off-grid periods throughout the day to only focus on what's at hand, like right now, producing this podcast, talking to you with no distractions, it is magical. So, and this talks about, I mean, it's not just about that checking that single text, and that's what I've tried to tell my daughters, in particular my oldest daughter, Rylan, who is definitely, she's always got her phone nearby, and she's God willing, and or no, not God willing, God bless, thank God. She's graduating from college this weekend. Congratulations, Rylan. We love you. We're proud of you. Roll Tide. Um, but she always had her phone with her. And I would try to tell her that if you're trying to study with your phone near you, here's what's going to happen. If you get, if you're so fortunate as to find a flow state, to find that intense 
focus and attention on the task at hand, by leaving it, it can take up to 20 minutes if you ever do get back into flow. And so while you're in flow, you can 10x your work. So you can do 10 times more work in an hour. You can do 10 hours of work in one hour, okay, versus not being in flow. One hour, and you might get however much, right? Just, one, just to say hour for hour, you only get an hour's worth of work versus getting 10 hours worth of work out of that one hour by being in flow. So just by checking that text and breaking that streak, you've, you've just you've completely minimized your productive ability. So anyway, these trends are exponential. It took radio 38 years to get 50 million users, but it took Angry Birds only 35 days. Isn't that crazy? The speed of, ad of adoption is accelerating, and our attention span is evaporating in kind. One study by Workplace Options found that this chronic distraction is costing American businesses approximately $650 billion per year in lost productivity. The constant fragmentation of concentration has become the new normal. We're living in a state of continuous partial attention. A phrase coined by an ex-Microsoft an ex and Apple consultant, Linda Stone, by adopting this always-on, anytime, anywhere, anyplace behavior, we scan the world all the time but rarely give full attention to anything. Guilty right here, this guy. Considering we're still walking around with the same wetware our, ancestor, our ancestors had hundreds of thousands of years ago, in the short term, we've adapted remarkably. Well, these demands, um, remarkably well to these demands on our attention. But in the long term, well, distractions make us dumber. And, oh, here we go. Here's the, one of the, the thing I was referencing earlier about the IQ. In 2005, research by Glenn Wilson at the London Institute of Psychiatry found that persistent interruptions and distractions at work have a profoundly negative impact on our intelligence. In his study, those distracted by emails and phone calls saw a 10-point decrease in their IQ. Wow, so we're literally dumbing down. According to a 2010 study by Daniel Gilbert and Matthew Killingsworth out of Harvard, we spent nearly 47% of our working hours thinking about something other than what we're doing. This mind-wandering has been shown to decrease cognitive performance. It has a negative impact on working memory and fluid intelligence. Real quick, can I tell you one of the things that I wish I remember where I learned this so I could give proper credit? It was in one of my books about, it might have been... Um, Bliss Brain by Dawson Church, which is a mindfulness book. Uh, it was either that or possibly uh, the book One Blade of Grass. Um, I don't remember. But it was talking about this idea of singular focus. And the analogy that was used that I have used ever since is washing dishes. Washing dishes sucks. But you know what? you know what makes it worse is when we're thinking about other things. When we're thinking about... Other things we'd rather be doing, problems, concerns, worries, just other distractions. If you want to make the most menial, mind-numbing task more pleasurable, focus on that task. So from now on, when I do dishes, when I'm thinking about it, whenever I'm really exercising, when I'm practicing this stuff I'm preaching at the moment, I will say to myself, I'm washing dishes when something tries to, when the DMM, because whenever our brain rests, right, because it's mind-numbing, doesn't take a lot. When our mind starts to rest and it starts to, like, think about all these other crazy things, what I will do is I'll just stop and go, no, right now I'm washing these dishes. And it is 
amazing. It is amazing the difference that it'll make. I'm going to read just a little bit more of this, then I'm going to get to Andrew Huberman. Sources of dopamine-inducing information are everywhere all the time. That means that in the modern attention economy, winning the war is about what you ignore. I have done, I've written articles, I've come on this show, and I've said sometimes the single most productive thing that you can do is say no. Learning the magical power of the word no and, and knowing what not to do. I, I, I think I wrote an article about creating a not-to-do list versus a to-do list. That is every bit, write out every morning the things, I will not do this today. It's powerful, and it's kind of the same thing here. Win the war on what you will ignore. Research shows that, that the primary determinant of high-level working memory isn't the ability to focus. Instead, memory depends more on ignoring distractions, and that ability is fragile even among young adults. Okay, so what you're about to listen to is Dr. Andrew Huberman, neuroscientist, Stanford University, incredible podcast. He's on everyone's podcast these days. One of these days, God willing, he'll be on the Jason Wright Show. Uh, and he's talking about how we narrow our focus to get and get rid of those distractions in the peripheral. Uh, I One of the things I, I think I mentioned in, in whenever um, I've mentioned this before, that it's really hard for me is staying focused on reading. My default mode network will kick in. The monkey brain will kick in. And so Andrew Huberman has a great way of actually dealing with this. So I wanted to bring this up. Let's see here. Where is my Huberman clip for you guys? Let's see. All right, so this is Dr. Andrew Huberman, and this is a great tactic for getting focused and lessening distraction. We are all familiar with the fact that our visual system can be unfocused, blurry, or jumping around, or we can be very laser focused on one location in space. What's interesting and vitally important to understanding how to access neuroplasticity is that you can use your visual focus and you can increase your visual focus as a way of increasing your mental focus abilities more broadly. So I'm gonna explain how to do that. Plasticity starts with alertness. And as I mentioned before, that alertness can come from a sense of love, a sense of joy, a sense of fear, doesn't matter. There are pharmacologic ways to access alertness too. The most common one is of course caffeine, which if you watch the sleep episodes, you know, reduces this molecule that makes us sleepy called adenosine. Uh, I drink plenty of caffeine. I'm a you know, heavy user of caffeine. I don't think abuser of caffeine. I think in reasonable amounts, provided we can still fall asleep at night, caffeine can be a relatively safe way to increase epinephrine. Now, many people are now also using Adderall. Adderall chemically looks a lot like amphetamine. And basically, it is amphetamine. It will increase epinephrine release from locus ceruleus. It will wake up the brain. And that's why a lot of people rely on it. It does have a heavy basis for use in certain clinical syndromes prescribed, such as attention deficit. However, it also has a high probability of abuse, especially in those who are not prescribed it. Adderall will not increase focus, it increases alertness. It does not touch the acetylcholine system. And if those of you that are taking Adderall say, well, it really increases my focus overall, 
That's probably because your autonomic nervous system is just veering towards what we call parasympathetic. You're really just very sleepy. And so it's bringing your levels of alertness up. As I mentioned, Adderall is very problematic for a number of people. It, has, it can be habit forming. Learning on Adderall does not always translate to high performance off or on Adderall at later times. And the Adderall discussion is a broader one that perhaps we should have with a psychiatrist in the room at some point because it is a very widely abused drug at this point in time. The acetylcholine system and the focus that it brings is available, as I mentioned, through pharmacology, but also through be these behavioral practices. And the behavioral practices that are anchored in visual focus are going to be the ones that are going to allow you to develop great depth and duration of focus. All right, this is where I wanna get into just the, the real meat of it. I don't take Adderall or, uh, or any of the other drugs. I do use caffeine, although I have cut that back a great deal. But this is why I am including this in this episode is because I really want you to get a grasp on the levers that you can pull to manipulate our own existing neurochemistry right now for better focus. And the reason why I'm bringing this to you is it's kind of a, 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 a lot of it is because I don't think I'm that unique in, in this way, in a lot of ways. I, I, I have a very, very difficult time not just focusing. I can get laser focused on something, but generally it's in short spurts. And so I got on this rabbit trail and got somewhat obsessive with the idea of, have, of how do I get to where I can focus for longer periods of time. For me, it was mainly for study and for long periods of reading. When I read, my monkey brain, which is the default mode network, the DMN, tends to go nuts. What the DMN is, if, if you look at like brain scans of people, whenever they are in the default mode network, which is whenever we're just kind of quiet, doing nothing. This is why so many people, by the way, have such a hard time sitting alone by themselves and doing nothing. Because in those times, that's when our brain will start telling us every single thing that it thinks we need to be thinking about, worrying about, being concerned with, old memories. It's the default mode network, meaning our brain will default into this survival mode of, okay, we don't see anything happening. You're not using your brain for any specific purpose right now. So as a result, you need to be thinking about these things. And that's what would happen to me when I would start to, it still happens to me whenever I start to read and I want to consume more books. And so I went down this uh, trail of figuring out flow state. This is where I first learned about the work from, um, from Stephen Kotler and uh, Cheek Sit Me High and all of these different flow practitioners or these these kind of the 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 the, the pioneers of understanding a flow state. Mark Devine, who is a uh, former Navy SEAL, who has an incredible training program now that he does. A lot of that is talking about how we focus and how we get into a flow state. So this is something that I really want you to pay attention to. I don't. I, obviously, and I don't, Andrew Huberman is certainly not doing that e either in this in this clip either, saying that, you know, the, the drugs that our kids are being given for ADD and for better focus, they really don't manipulate the chemicals in such a way that are going to make the kids focus and absorb more and then lead to more brain plasticity, which essentially just means manipulating our brain and changing our brain into uh, being able to absorb and keep the information we want. All it's going to do is make us more alert. So anyway, this is the key to this discussion. So let's think about visual focus for a second. 
when we focus on something visually, we have two options. We can either look at a very small region of space with a lot of detail and a lot of precision, or we can dilate our gaze and we can see big pieces of visual space with very little detail. It's a trade-off. We can't look at everything at high resolution. This is why we have these, the, the pupil more or less relates to the fovea of the eye, which is the area in which we have the most receptors, the highest density of receptors that perceive light. And so our acuity is much better in the center of our visual field than in our periphery. It's a simple experiment you can do right now. If you're listening to this, you can still do it. You can hold your, your hands out in front of you, provided that you're sighted. You should be able to see how many fingers you have in front of you. For me, it's five. Still got all five fingers, amazingly enough. If I move my hand off to the side, and I'm I can't see them with precision, but as I move them back into the center of my visual field, I can see them with precision. And that's because the density, the number of pixels in the center of my visual field is much higher than it is in the periphery. When we focus our eyes, we do a couple things. First of all, we tend to do that in the center of our visual field and our two eyes tend to align in what's called a vergence eye movement towards a common point. The other thing that happens is the lens of our eye moves so that our brain now no longer sees the entire visual world, but is seeing a small cone of visual imagery. If it, <laughs> that was the dog bumping into the wall, forgive me. That small cone of visual imagery or soda straw view of the world has much higher acuity, higher resolution than if I were to look at everything. Now you say, of course, this makes perfect sense, but that's about visual attention, not mental attention. Well, it turns out that focus in the brain is anchored to our visual system. I'll talk about blind people in a moment, but assuming that somebody is sighted, the key is to learn how to focus better visually if you want to bring about higher levels of cognitive or mental focus. Even okay, now I want to tell you something that I have actually done videos on with regard to how to become a more voracious reader. I So Jim Quick wrote the book... Um, uh, Limitless, which is a great book, and I, I'm going to blame it on me uh, because Jim Quick is just too too good of a uh, teacher and author, and I just I think his his methods are absolutely spot on. But I think I misread or miss I think I, I misappropriated some of the things that he told. One of which being how to read faster, like with your finger, you know, tracing your finger. I do think that's a good method. And I think that probably some of the methods that I incorporated helped me become a faster reader and a more, uh, more able to read more. But here's what I have learned. And this is my personal experience. You test it out. What Andrew Huberman is talking about right here has made sense for me to become a better reader in this way. When I stopped trying to read for speed and started to read for comprehension, I necessarily had to slow down. I had to bring my focus to the words on the page. Whereas whenever I was trying to read for speed, I which is basically essentially where there, speed readers will tell you, you try to use your entire visual field of the page and try to uh, use your peripheral vision more, which is exactly the opposite of what Andrew Huberman is saying right here. He's saying that the brain will become more focused as you limit the peripheral. And so what I've started to do is focus in more on exactly what I'm reading and don't worry so much with the the speed with which I read it. And it, and it turns out this has held me to a book a lot longer. It has really increased my comprehension. It has made it slower. I'm not able to read as fast. Obviously, the 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 brass ring is if I can com, 
combine that focus, that comprehension, and the speed. I'm not there yet. But I can tell you, I have put into practice what he's talking about right now as it relates to my reading, and my comprehension level has gone through the roof, and I'm able to stay focused longer by limiting that peripheral side. So just wanted to make that note. Even if you're engaged in a physical task. Now, there's a remarkable phenomenon in animals where animals that have their eyes on the side of their head are scanning the entire visual environment all the time. They're not focused on anything. Think your grazing animals, your cows, your sheep, your birds, etc. But think about a bird picking up seeds on the beach or on concrete. That bird's head is up here. It's up about a foot off the ground, or if it's a small bird, about six inches off the ground. And its eyes are on the side of its head, and yet it has this tiny beak that can quickly pick up these little seeds off the ground with immense precision. Now, if you try to do that by staring off to the sides of the room and picking up items in front of you with high precision at that tiny scale, little tiny objects, you will miss almost every time. They do it perfectly, and they don't smash their beak into the ground and damage it. They do it with beautiful movement acuity also. So how do they do it? How do they create this focus or this awareness of what's in front of them. And it turns out as they lower their head, their eyes very briefly move inward in what's called a virgin's eye movement. Now, their eyes can't actually translocate in their head. They're fixed in the skull, just like yours and mine are. But when we move our eyes slightly inward, maybe you can tell that I'm doing it like, like so, basically shortening or, or making the interpupillary distance as it's called smaller, two things happen. Not only do we develop a smaller visual window into the world, but we activate a set of neurons in our brainstem that trigger the release of both norepinephrine, epinephrine, and acetylcholine. Norepinephrine is kind of similar to epinephrine. So in other words, when our eyes are relaxed in our head, when we're just kind of looking at our entire visual environment, moving our head around, moving through space, we're in optic flow, things moving past us, or we're sitting still, we're looking broadly at our space, we're relaxed. When our eyes move slightly inward toward a particular visual target, our visual world shrinks, our level of visual focus goes up, and we know that this relates to the release of acetylcholine and epinephrine at the relevant sites in the brain for plasticity. Now, what this means is that if you have a hard time focusing your mind for sake of reading or for listening, you need to practice, and you can practice, focusing your visual system. Now, this works best if you practice focusing your visual system at the precise distance from the work that you intend to do for sake of plasticity. So how would this look in the real world? Let's say I am trying to concentrate on something related to, I don't know, science. I'm reading a science paper and I'm having a hard time. It's not absorbing. I might think that I'm only looking at the paper that I'm reading. I'm only looking at my screen, but actually my eyes are probably darting around a bit. Experiments have been done on this. Or I'm gathering information from too many sources in, in the visual environment. Now, presumably, because it's me, I've already had my coffee, I'm hydrated, I'm well, well rested, I slept well, and I still experience these challenges in focusing. Spending just 60 to 120 seconds focusing my visual attention on a small window of my screen, meaning just on my screen with nothing on it, but bringing my eyes to that particular location increases not just my visual acuity for that location, but it brings about an increase in activity in a bunch of other brain areas that are associated with gathering information from this location. So put simply, if you want to improve your 
ability to focus, practice visual focus. Now, if you wear contacts or you have, or you wear uh, corrective lenses, that's fine. You, of course, would want to use those. You don't want to take those off and use a, a blurry image. The finer the visual image and the more that you can hold your gaze to that visual image, the higher your levels of attention will be. Many times on Instagram and here I've been teased for not blinking very often. That's actually a practiced thing. We blink more as we get tired, which as you hear it, you'll probably just say, duh. As we get tired, the neurons in the brainstem that are responsible for alertness and that hold the eyelids open start to falter and our eyelids start to close. This is why it's hard, the words, I could barely keep my eyes open, which may be how you feel right now. But assuming that you're paying attention and you're alert, when you're very alert, your eyes are wide, your eyes are open. And as you get tired, your eyelids start to close. Blinks actually reset our perception of time and space. This was shown in a beautiful paper in Current Biology. I'll be sure to post the reference in the notes. And blinking, of course, is necessary to lubricate the eyes. People blink because their eyes might get dry. But if you can keep focus by blinking less, and by focusing your eyes to a particular location, it's probably pretty creepy for you to experience as I'm doing this. But the more that you can do this, the more that you can maintain a kind of a cone or a tunnel of mental focus. And so I'm sort of revealing my practice, which is that I've worked very hard through blinking contests with my 14-year-old niece who still beats me every time and it really bothers me, but also just through my own self-practice of learning to blink less and focus my visual attention on a smaller region of space. Now for me, that's important because I'm mainly learning things on a computer screen. If you're going to be doing sport, it's quite a bit different and we can discuss how you might translate that to sport. In fact, in the next... All right, so that's where I wanted to just cut it off because I mean, I could listen to Andrew Huberman all day long, but you guys may not want to and you can always check him out on his podcast. Here is a tip based on what he's talking about. Let's go back to the dishes. <clears throat> if you want to feel like Eddie Morrow, who is the the movie Limitless, I mentioned the book by Jim Quick, Limitless, earlier, the movie Limitless, where uh, Bradley Cooper finds this pill to re to get just massive, massive focus and use of his entire brain. Um, if you really want to try this and see what it feels like in a very small, uh, easy-to-practice context, go back to the dishwashing exercise. And before, whenever you go to wash your dishes, take a, a coffee mug or whatever you have in front of you and literally just focus on the mug. Tell yourself, I'm cleaning this mug. And then start. The whole time, narrow your focus as much as you can. And then if you will start to do that in practice, for example, I know none of you ever look at your phone while you're driving, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, of course you do. And, and, and those of you who don't, thank you. So what I have tried to start doing, not just get rid of my phone by putting it in the console, but putting my hands at the 10 and 2 on the steering wheel and just telling myself, I'm driving. Now, granted, you want to use your peripheral vision because you want to be a good defensive driver. So I'm not telling you to just laser in on what's right in front of you and just be completely disregard, disregard what's to your peripheral. That's probably, that's probably not the best idea. But if you will take this idea of narrowing your visual field and just focusing, it is a game changer. As it relates to the earlier portion of the, the show, 
Start removing those distractions. Start taking the, the remember, it's no, learning what to ignore. Learning to put your phone on do not disturb. Think to yourself, the, the being constantly attached, this is especially being a parent. We start to think that, well, I have to have my phone with me at all times. I have to have it on at all times because what if, fill in the blank, what if certain, what if this person calls? What if, you know, Ryland calls? What if Abby calls? The likelihood of it happening, and look, the bottom line is you're just going to have to allow yourself sometime throughout the day to do nothing but the task at hand. You will do it better, more efficiently. You'll feel better. You'll use less energy. You'll take most of that energy, and you'll, it'll be, your energy will be, and your focus will be like a dam, like a river being dammed, and the energy harnessed and then lasered into the thing you're trying to focus on. So I hope you guys found this, uh, this beneficial. I just wanted to come on here and talk a little bit about focus. I, again, I'm going to keep on. Last time it was how to have a millionaire mindset and some tools and tactics on financial management. This time, I want to come at you with some focus, improving your focus always in all ways. If there are some things you want to hear about, if you want to just like, Jason, what do you do? Every week in the Vitruvian Letter, I open the mailbag and I answer at least one question that's been posed to me either through a DM, an email, a phone call. Uh, I share it. So if you haven't subscribed to the uh, Vitruvian Letter, do that at jasonrightnow.com and submit me a question. And maybe it's something I know nothing about, but it'll give me something to go research. Until we meet again, I'm Jason. I'm out. Thanks for listening.